0: Well, we're in Mark, the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of 16. Uh, In 1925, uh, the Eiffel Tower was uh, having some problems. Uh, In fact, uh, the newspapers were reporting that the city was having a hard time even having enough funds to keep the Eiffel Tower going. And uh, so um, a man named Victor Lustig, uh, who... uh, was uh, you know, a government uh, official uh, sent uh, this letter out to uh, some metal dealers throughout France, and he said, "You know, we just you just can't pay for it anymore. The Eiffel Tower, and we're just going to have to we're going to have to sell the Eiffel Tower uh, for scrap." And so he sent this to all the metal dealers, and one metal dealer um, responded and said, "Okay, I will." I will take, um, I will purchase the Eiffel Tower scrap metal. And so uh, Victor um, procured the money from this man uh, and uh, sold the Eiffel Tower uh, to him, uh, to the scrap metal dealer uh, for uh, quite a, a sum of money. But little did this Scrabbett old person know that Victor was not a government official at all. In, f- in fact, he was a con man, uh, one of the greatest con mans of the 20th century. And uh, he took the money that the man gave him in cash and uh, fled to Vienna. Uh, and the man was so embarrassed that he had bought the Eiffel Tower uh, that he didn't even want to go to the police to prosecute uh, uh, Victor Lustig uh, because he was so embarrassed about it. Here we are, 22 weeks into the book of Mark, 15 chapters in, from a man that claims he's the head of the temple, the master over the spiritual realm, he has power over the body, he is the head over creation, he is the son of God, he is the Messiah. And now... This guy that's claimed all these things is dead. And what do his followers think of him now? They think they've just been sold the to Eiffel Tower. They followed this guy for three years. They spent all this time hearing all these things and seeing all these things that done. They've been sold a load of goods. Hear me. If we did all these weeks of this study, we went through all these 15 chapters and it ended there at Jesus' death, we have been sold the Eiffel Tower. We have been sold something that will not bring us anything in return. So what does these last few verses in the book of Mark tell us? What do these last verses that show an empty tomb, show an angel proclaiming what happened to Jesus, tell us about all these 22 weeks we've studied, all these 15 chapters we've gone through? If they're not there, these last verses, it means nothing. And this will tell us three things, these last verses. Please, if you want to write anything down, it's thing to write down. This message deserves a response. This message changes what leadership and discipleship looks like. And lastly, this message transforms every area of our life. So let us read together this last section of the book of Mark as we close in it and see how it brings light in fulfillment, in richness, to all that Jesus has done and said before this. Here we go, Mark 15, verse 40 to sixteen, eight. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and um, Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted a corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought um, uh, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, Uh, um, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and good, and we are thankful for this message of the resurrection. God, it's maybe something we've heard over and over again. I pray that we would look at it with new eyes and new hearts to be able to be transformed by it. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Uh, I am going to make this um, claim, and I, I hope I'm right, that the majority of people that live in northeastern Wisconsin have probably been in the church and heard the Easter message. I, I think the majority of people here have. Um, whether it's uh, out of uh, your mom tells you you got to go on Easter morning uh, or out of religious duty. Uh, there is this sense here in northeastern Wisconsin that, yeah, if I'm ever going to uh, claim that I'm a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Christian or whatever it might be, i got to go to church on Easter, at least once a year, you know? And so this message comes over and over again. And uh, some of you might be saying, well, I've heard this message over and over again. It's not Easter Sunday. Why share it now? Is there anything fresh and new that I can get? I want to make this claim to you. Even if you have heard this message many, many times. And again, we live in a place where the majority have heard this message. First is this. I have never heard an Easter message from the book of Mark before. Uh, Mark is the shortest one. It's the briefest one, and it's pretty quick. It doesn't give all this kind of nice resolution at the end of it. And usually when people are preaching on Easter, it's usually from Matthew or Luke or John, not the book of Mark. So, this might be fresh and new for you, the book of Mark, here in the Easter message. Second is this, the uniqueness of the resurrection to the Christian message. I don't even know, you know this, but the Christian message is not just a philosophical and ethical system. It is also an historical system. I want you to make this sense. If Jesus did not exist in history, if his claims of dying upon the cross and rising from the dead did not happen as an event in history, its philosophical and ethical tradition means absolutely nothing. If Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad, we found out they did not exist, the philosophical and ethical systems of islam of confucianism of say that right confucianism and buddhism could still exist even if they did not exist but if jesus did not exist rise from the dead the christian message is nothing it is the heart of the christian message This, the idea of the resurrection, radically changes how we would view a fallen world, how we live, what we value. It's the very core, I think, of the message of the Bible. So, (laughs) it deserves a response. I mean, even Paul said this, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith means nothing. It is in vain. We have lived for nothing. So that being said, I think it's probably good that we review the resurrection message once in a while, right? Is that okay? So we'll do it again even in September and not at Easter time. Well, if you do, one of those people that goes to church on Easter um, Sunday, you have friends that just go on Easter Sunday. I think there is this sense in northeastern Wisconsin that, you know, The resurrection story, the message of Jesus, you know, that was great for people back then. You know, people back then, they could hear miracle stories and be okay with it. You know, those people believed in those supernatural things. But nowadays, we we don't really... We don't really believe in that stuff. I'll go on Easter morning because that's what I, that's what I should do, right? <laughs> or um, if I want to really um, t- t- continue in my German and uh, Scandinavian tradition, um, it's probably good that I continue this. Yeah, you know, it's a good religion that I should say I believe in. But really, did this really happen? I mean, yeah, back then they could believe in that stuff, but now, I, yeah, I, I, just, I just I don't know. But I'll go because... That's what you do here. You know, that's what my parents did. You know, but really, I don't know. But I want to challenge that idea. I believe that even the people back then, even the people that lived in the first century, thought the resurrection was as crazy, as insane As people today that live in modern, enlightenment, scientific thinking. Even they thought this idea of this kind of miracle was crazy. Follow me in this. Look at this with me. Okay, first, we say, we find out that this, Jesus constantly says to these followers, he says multiple times, here's some things that are going to happen. I'm going to be brought to the authorities and I'm going to be persecuted by them. He says this multiple times. It happens, right? Right? She says, I will be abandoned by you and betrayed by you. Even one person among you will betray me to these authorities. Did it happen? Yes, it happened. And then he goes, and says, Peter, you will deny me three times. Did it happen? It happened. What did he also say along with these things? In three days I will rise again. Right? Did he say that? How many people came... Because All these other things happened, right? All these things he prophesied happened. How many people came and checked out the tomb on Sunday morning to see if it happened? How many came and saw... Wait, all these other things he said happened. You know, all these other things he's done that are great and powerful... Shouldn't this happen too? But who, how did people came to see if it really happened? None. Zero. You say, well, wait a second. These ladies came. Right? These ladies came. Well, why did the ladies come? I don't know if you know this back then. um, But back then in that age, um, there were kind of two steps to burial. Okay? The first step is they put you in kind of more of the open space in a tomb, whether it's cut out in rock or an old cave or something like that. They put you in there. And then over time, as the body kind of wore away, they would then take the bones and they would put them in a bone box. Okay? Maybe you've re- read that recently about bone boxes are a big thing of, in archaeology. They put you in a bone box. So to not make that second process um, smelly and gross, um, they would, after the body had been taken down the day after, they would usually just um, anoint it with lots of perfume and oil so that second process wouldn't be as gross. Now, these ladies would have done it the day after Jesus was taken from um, the cross, but they didn't because it was the Sabbath. They couldn't touch... Jewish law, they couldn't touch the dead on the Sabbath. And also because you couldn't probably buy things like perfume on the Sabbath day. So here they are, the day after the Sabbath, going for what? see Jesus rose from the dead? No. Going to anoint his body so that the second process of collecting him in a bone box would be better. Even they didn't believe that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. This was foreign to the culture back then. Greeks, they believed the body was that, that actually the soul is what was resurrected, not the body. Jews, they might have believed in a resurrection, but not a resurrection of one person, the Messiah at that time, but a resurrection of everyone at the end of time, at the final judgment. You see, even back then, the idea of the resurrection was crazy, was ludicrous. Even back then, people had to ask the question, could this even be true? And Mark wants to tell readers, tell society, tell this world it is true. And he writes to make it that way, to show that it is true. Here's what he does. One, he gives evidence. And back then, it's not an uh, a written tradition, but an oral tradition. So the way that you showed that something was historical tr- historically true was eyewitnesses. And Mark, I don't know if it's before, in the first 15 chapters, he usually didn't give proper names a lot um, of characters. He just kind of referred to them as maybe the rich young ruler or whatever it might be. But here, he gives names to individuals that were there. Joseph of Arimathea. These ladies, all these things, he gives proper names to them. Why does he give proper names to them? Because he's writing at a time that they're still alive. You don't believe this, he's saying? You don't believe this is true? Go ask them. These are people that are real. Ask Joseph of Arimathea. Ask Mary. Ask Solomon. These are real people. You can go ask them. They exist today. They are eyewitnesses to this story. So that is why he gives their name. You don't believe Jesus really died? Go ask Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. No, this is a big claim. He never really died. Instead, they took his body off the cross before he was dead, and then they buried him. And then he was still alive, and Joseph kind of revived him before that, and then he came out. Here's the problem with that. One, there is not, there were, I don't know if you there were hundreds of thousands of crucifixions in the Roman time, over hundreds of years. There is not one record in history of anyone living through a crucifixion, of being put on the cross and then coming down alive, or escaping it, or, in, not one, except, here we go. Second is this, that Joseph and Herodotia had to go to, Pilate, to confirm that Jesus was dead, something that was hard to do in the first place, and something that Pilate usually didn't do because what would happen is they would leave the bodies upon the cross for days so it would be a sign of Roman victory. But the Jewish law, usually the, Greek, the Romans would allow this, they would allow them to take their bodies down early because the rule of, of burial, proper burial. So, Joseph and Arithea, part of the Sanhedrin, goes and asks Pilate if he can do this. And Pilate asks the centurion, is he really dead? And if the centurion had lied or not told the truth, it would cost him his life. So obviously, he probably said, yes, he is dead. So, with these two confirmations of Joseph and Marathia still being alive and seeing what happened, Jesus, dead upon the cross, is then buried. And then the second thing is these ladies, giving them specific names. Um, if you, maybe the disciples just were trying to start a religion so they made up the idea of the resurrection. The problem with this is that if you want to make up a story of the resurrection and you want to have eyewitnesses to it, you don't have ladies be the ones that are eyewitnesses. Sorry, ladies. But back then, ladies could not be eyewitnesses as part of a trial. Back then, ladies were marginalized. And if you want to have someone be an eyewitness to Jesus raised from the dead, don't make the ladies the eyewitness. (laughs) Make men. So obviously, it must be true if Mark is going to have ladies be the eyewitness. But more than this, These people that didn't believe in a resurrection, that thought this is just as skeptical as we might say today, they were committed to this, weren't they? They gave up their lives. They gave up their esteem. They gave up their pride. They gave up their Jewish heritage to follow Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. They too were willing to ask the questions of themselves and others around Is this true? Did Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead? If they were willing to go through that kind of evidence finding, through that rational thinking, are you? Are you? Are you willing to to say, yes, this is true. This really did happen. This really is something that 2,000 years ago, God came to earth and rose from the dead through Jesus Christ. And that will change everything. So we just can't suspend, oh, we live in this age. Those things can't be true. If those people back then could do that and give their lives to it, are we willing to look at that same thing and see if it is true for us? Moving on, this idea of Jesus raising from the dead, it changes what leadership looks like. Um, okay, let's just say you, uh, ha- you know that you are going to win the $300 million Powerball. And you are going to buy the winning ticket. And you tell your close friends, listen, come to my house the night the Powerball is called. And we are going to share in the winnings together. Because I know I'm going to win. And so your friends, um, uh, you find out they none of them show up, first of all, to your party. Uh, all of them um, start saying you're crazy to other people. And uh, they just stop hanging out with you, pretty much. And they betray you at times, and say, I'm done. I'm done with him. And guess what? On that night of the Powerball drawing, you win the $300, $300 million, okay? And, you know, um, a friend comes in that's friends with your other friends over there. You say, hey, you won. What should we go tell your friends? What should we tell them? Here's multiple choice of what you might say, okay? One, one you, could say, you could say this to them. Um, you can say to your friends, um, you know what? You can tell my friends to go take a flying leap, okay? You can say that. You can go tell them. They can shove you know, whatever you might want to say, okay? That's what you can tell your friends. Or you could say, you know what? If they beg, if they ask for forgiveness, if they come to my feet and kiss it, maybe, maybe I'll give them a hundred bucks, Okay? Or three, you could say, you know, tell them, tomorrow night I'm throwing a party for them. And they can have all my winnings. What would you say? A, B, or C, what would you say? This is the craziness of the gospel. Read this with me. This is what the angel says to pass on. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But here's the craziness. But go. Tell his disciples. Go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. They've abandoned him. Did any of them even go and take down the body after he had died? No. A guy of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, one that they lambasted themselves, he's the one that took them down. Did they even go to anoint his body after death? No. They let the ladies do that. They couldn't even do that. They ran. A friend for three years. A friend that fed them. A friend that showed them miracles. A friend that did all these things to them. They didn't even have the decency to go check him out, take out his body. They didn't even do that. But what does Jesus say? Go tell those freaks. Go tell those weaklings that I don't want really to have anything to do with them. No. What does he say? Go tell them. And here's the words. It's Prago in Greek. I am leading the way for them. Like an army, or like a general, like a commander leading a force. I am leading the way for them. Have them come with me. And is that good news, or what? Did they repent, and then they could come? Did they do X and Y, so then they could come? No. They abandoned, and Jesus still loved them and shown kindness to them and loved them, and then they could come. And it even gets crazier than that. One word, one word that is revolutionary in this passage. What is that word? What's the word that's I'm just revolutionary for this whole passage? Peter, tell the disciples and Peter. What do we know about Peter? He's supposed to be the leader of the group, right? He's supposed to be the rock. He's supposed to be the one that's going to be leading this movement. And what did he do? What did Peter do? He betrayed him. He denied him. And Jesus, in saying this, is saying, Peter, if I would have just told the disciples, you probably wouldn't have come. You said, oh, he can't mean me. Because of what I did. No, he says, and tell Peter to come. Answer this for me. How could the biggest screw-up, the biggest mess-up, be the leader of this movement of Christianity? How could the biggest screw-up, the biggest loser, pretty much, be the leader of this movement? Please, I know I say this sometimes a lot. Hear this. If you're going to hear something, hear this. It couldn't be any other way. The power of the gospel is this. That Jesus makes the biggest screw-ups, the biggest failures, the biggest sinners. He makes them the leaders. He makes them the one that will lead in His church. Why does He make Peter the leader? He makes him the leader because Peter understands this. It's repentance and failure that enhances the power of God in his life. Peter understood the message of grace, the message of God's love for him, probably greater than anyone else did the disciples, because he failed the greatest. Because he failed the greatest, he understood God's grace the greatest. Is that not true? This is an upside-down view of leadership. It's the screw-ups. It's the repentant. It's the sinners that God uses for His glory because it's them that say, it's not me, it's only Him that the only reason that anything I'm doing has power and strength in this world. A man, 15 honorary doctorates. The Templeton Prize, which is the greatest award given to people of nonprofit status, over a million dollars. The Presidential Citizens Medal of Honor, the greatest award given to a citizen of the United States, given to him by George W. Bush. All these awards were given to this man. And before that, this man was truly powerful. (laughs) he was a special counsel to Richard Nixon. People called him the hatchet man, (laughs) which means he wrote lists of people that were on the administration's bad side, and he blackballed them. He made sure they got out of the way. He had the president's ear. So much, when Richard Nixon wanted people to break into Watergate, he helped it. Well, Watergate breaks, and Charles Colson is um, <laughs> is beside himself, and um, he's not been charged yet, but he knows trouble is coming. And a friend of him, a friend of his, uh, invites him over, and they talk, and his friend presents the gospel to him, and he comes out of his friend's house, and this is what happens to him. Outside in the darkness, the iron grip I'd kept on my emotions began to relax. Tears welled up in my eyes as I groped in the darkness for the right key to start my car. Angrily, I brushed them away and started the engine. What kind of weakness is this, I said to nobody. As I drove out of Tom's driveway, the tears were flowing uncontrollably. There were no street lights, no moonlight. The car headlights were flooding illumination before my eyes, but I was crying so hard it was like trying to swim underwater. I pulled to the side of the road, no more than 100 yards from the entrance of Tom's driveway, the tires sinking into soft mounds of pine needles. I remember hoping that Tom and Gert wouldn't hear my sobbing, the only sound other than the chirping of crickets that penetrated the still of the night. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretense, about fears of being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing its cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say, um, to say more, so I repeated over and over the words, take me, take me, take me. God uses those people, a man that spent time in jail for Watergate to start the greatest nonprofit to prisoners that this world has ever seen. that through his weakness and through his sin, God did mighty things for him to give him all these honorary doctorates, a felon, <laughs> the Templeton Prize, a one that orchestrated a break-in to the DNC. The President Citizens Medal of Honor to a man that was called the Hatchet Man. God turned that man into greatness because God uses sinners for His glory. Please hear me here. You want to be an amazing parent? You want to be a great leader? You want to be a great friend? You want to be a good husband? You want to be amazing at your work? Be amazing at repenting. Be amazing at saying, I am a screw-up. I fail time and time again. Because you know when you do that, and I love Tim Keller when he says that, if you let your failure drive you into the gospel, it becomes a resurrection. Then you see your flaws. But then it makes you humbler and bolder and a lover greater than anyone can imagine. That is the good news of the gospel. Tell the disciples and Peter to come. Sinners, screw-ups, that they will lead this movement of the kingdom of God and tell of my resurrection power. Well, a lot of people have a problem with the book of Mark. Um, If you have your Bibles open, um, some of you might see that um, there's a little uh, parentheses or brackets that says from verse 9 to verse 20, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And uh, then there's these other words after it. And, uh, you know, these manuscripts are not found until the latter part of the second century, and uh, plus years after the earlier manuscripts. The writing is not similar uh, to the rest of Mark, uh, and it, it expands on themes that were more prevalent in the second century than were in the first century. So I agree with other scholars that the latter part of Mark is not really a part of uh, what Mark wrote, but uh, a later edition. And with that, um, the reason they might have added this edition is because um, Mark ends so abruptly. Uh, Some people say the reason Mark ends abruptly is because, um, you know, the scrolls back then, the beginning and the end of the scrolls, um, You know, like a scroll like this is written like that. So the beginning and ends were the ones that became frayed and sometimes were torn off. So the beginning and ending of letters sometimes were hard to make out. And some scholars believe the end of the book of Mark, that manuscript, is worn down or torn off. So there could be something after it. Maybe, I don't know, uh, but I know God gave us this. Um, so I will, I will respond to this. I think this kind of writing plays in to how Mark writes, this kind of abrupt ending. And uh, the reason I think it, it plays in um, to Mark um, is because, uh, one, uh, Mark is to the point. Uh, he says things quickly. And uh, he really wanted to get to the very point, the climax of the story, which is the resurrection, And then also, Mark likes the idea of putting the action to us. Okay? Uh, He wants us to respond. He wants to put us in the story. And so here is the sense of ending quickly um, and not knowing what is going to happen with this gospel message. He's saying, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this message that has been put forward, the idea of the resurrection? Uh, it's much like uh, watching a movie that ends abruptly. Uh, movie, I like movies that end abruptly because it makes you think. Uh, movies like The Wrestler, uh, which I love. It's a picture of uh, the wrestler jumping off the thing, and then it goes to black. You don't know what's going to happen. And the movies like Inception, you know, you see the thing turn, you don't know if it's going to fall over or not. It's a dream and all these things. So, I mean, those movies that end abruptly, what is the, the movie maker trying to do? Trying to get you to think. What is... What is your ending? What do you think really is going to happen? Where are you in the story? And this is what Mark is doing too. How are you going to respond to this message of the resurrection? And people are perplexed sometimes with this idea. And the women, they were silent. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The irony that Mark loves isn't that great? Remember when Jesus said, don't tell anyone? And what did they do? They told people. And then what happens when the angel says, go tell everyone? They don't tell everyone. I think we've lived in an age called the evangelical age, whatever, from the 70s until now, where we are into pep talks. You know? I'm, good. I'm a good pep talker, right? We're into excitement, you know? Change. Find Jesus. Go do it. Go tell others. You know, I've I've realized something. Pep talks just, they last just so long. (laughs) And then it kind of runs out. I can hear a pep talk, and I can be like, man, I'm on fire for Jesus. Here I go. I'm going to go tell everyone about Him. You know, the truth is, when I'm really faced with the idea of the resurrection, of what Jesus does, if I was like these women and had seen this, I would be trembling too. I would be freaked. And the truth is, when I look at areas of my life, areas that I still need work on, areas that I still need to grow on, areas that I see, I have not let the pep talk come into that area. Because a pep talk can't go that deep. Please hear me. The resurrection story is, This idea of the resurrection takes hold of areas in the life you don't think can be controlled. It will change you if you allow it to. Don't get motivated by a pep talk, by encouragement. Get motivated by this. Jesus, take me. Take me with your resurrection power. With that power that was able to conquer death. The power that was able to transform a society back then to become the most dominant religion in the Roman Empire. A power that was able to motivate missionaries in England in the 19th century to go through Africa, to come to the United States, to come to all over the world and share his message. A power that motivates people today to give up their lives, to give up their money, to give up everything they have to give up those claims upon them. God, let your resurrection power take those things in me. Day by day, I need to give God those things. And day by day, He is taking them and molding me and changing me and sanctifying me. I'm silent many times. But in the long run, He is going to transform me Into a mighty thing, and he will do the same thing to you. That's Mark. That's Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he came to do to conquer death, to change this world, to turn it upside down and say, It's not by your work, it's not by what you can do, it's not by your repentance. But it's what I did for you. It's my love that will change you and turn this kingdom upside down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for uh, just the ability to know that we have your resurrection power upon us. That it can penetrate into areas in our life that we don't think it can. Just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.